Or you guys can turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. We're kicking off a new sermon series today on investing. So Luke 19. Speaking of investments, when my brother graduated from college about 12 years ago, he scraped together all the money he had, about five grand, and he invested it in the stock of a technology company that was not doing real well back then. He, he bought a little stock called Apple, $5,000 worth of Apple 12 years ago. Um, and then about two years later, he decided it was time to go to law school. So he, he sold his $5,000 in stock for $1,000 profit. So that's good to, to pay some money for tuition there. Um, went off to law school. He sold it. This is the ironic thing. He sold it about two weeks before Apple unveiled the iPod. Now, you know where this story is going, don't you? So we, we added it up the other day. If he would have sold this year at Apple's high, his $5,000 worth of stock would have been worth half a million dollars. Seriously. Law school doesn't look so good anymore, does it? <laughs> Hundred to one profit on that investment. If only he would have known the future. If only he would have known how valuable that investment would have been. Well, what if I could tell you about an investment this morning that's even better than buying Apple in the late 90s? What if I told you that I actually know the future and I can offer you an investment that is guaranteed to be more valuable than any stock you could possibly buy? Would you want to buy in? Well, in fact, I actually do know the future and I actually do know about exactly that kind of investment, far better than Apple in the late 90s could ever be. I know it because Jesus told us. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus actually taught often on the subject of investing. Jesus had a lot to say about investing. Many passages on the subject of how we invest. And we're going to look this morning at one of the most famous and most significant of Jesus' lessons on investing. A parable in Luke 19. So we're going to read this whole story. Look Look at Luke 19. Starting in verse 12, we're just going to read through this whole story because parables are, are a story. They're meant to be read at one time in one sitting. So uh, let's look at Luke 19, starting in verse 12. Let's see what Jesus has to say about investing. So he, that is Jesus, said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten, ten minas, that's a unit of money, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You were to be an authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, you also are to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was very afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. So he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. 
And they said, Master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Parable of Jesus. Jesus taught a lot of parables. A parable is just a story from everyday life that is meant to illustrate some biblical truth. Now in this parable about a a nobleman and his slaves, the, the point of the parable, the purpose of the parable is to explain to the slaves what they should be doing while the master is away. You know, it's right in the middle of the story. There's a gap of time, an unspecified gap between when the master goes away to receive his kingdom and when he returns to evaluate his slaves. Now, actually, that's very historical. In the ancient world, if you wanted to be a king or, or a governor over a province or a country, what you had to do is leave and travel to Rome to the center of the empire, and you had to appeal to the emperor himself to give you permission to have authority over that province. So so the master, he goes away for a while. He has to travel to Rome to receive authority, and there's this gap between when he leaves and when he returns, and the parable is meant to instruct his slaves about what to do in his absence. Now, the corollary there, the connection there, obviously the nobleman here is Jesus. That's what the parable represents. The nobleman is Jesus, and we live in the gap. The gap is right now. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And when he ascended into heaven, what did he do in heaven? Well, he received authority from God the Father over heaven and earth, just like the nobleman. He has received authority, but Jesus hasn't come back yet. He is still away. We live in the gap between his departure and his return. And the parable is meant to instruct us as followers of Jesus Christ, what are we to be doing while our master is away? That's what this story is about. And in this story, this complex parable, Jesus reveals to us three principles on investing. Three timeless truths that are meant to guide how we invest our lives and our time, our talents and our wealth while Jesus is away. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. These these three principles on investing that Jesus has for us in this parable. So let's jump right in. First principle on investing that Jesus teaches us in this parable is that we do not invest in order to gain eternal life. This parable was spoken to the disciples, not spoken to the nation as a whole. It was spoken to Jesus' disciples, those who already knew him. This parable is not about how his disciples gain eternal life. It's about those who are already believers, what they should be doing while Jesus is away. So it's not about gaining eternal life. And Jesus actually makes that clear. I don't know if you noticed as we read the story. Did you notice, okay, there's the nobleman over here, but then there's actually two separate groups of people in the story. Did you notice that? Two separate groups. Two separate groups of people that receive two very different penalties for unfaithfulness. Who's the first group? The 10 slaves. The 10 slaves are in the master's household. They belong to him, they live with him, they serve him, they receive responsibilities from him, they receive rewards from him. These are believers. The 10 slaves are believers, those who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he would do what he said he would do. This is us, any of us who have believed the gospel, the good news about Jesus, we are the 10 slaves. Now, let's pause for a moment. Um, You may not be very comfortable thinking about yourself as a slave. 
It's kind of a derogatory term. It's not what we like to think about ourselves. What we need to recognize and remember, we've talked about this many times before, all human beings are slaves. It's in our DNA. By nature, every human being is a slave. You are a slave either of sin and Satan or of Jesus. You're not free. You're a slave. All you get to choose is who your master is, either sin and Satan or Jesus. And the good news for us who believe is we're slaves of Jesus, and he's an infinitely better master than sin and Satan. Slave, it strikes us as an insult. We don't want to be called a slave. It reminds me, uh, a few months ago, I came home. I open the back door. My kids hear that I come home, and they run to greet me, and they're so excited to see me, and they yell out, Daddy, you are a stinker pot. Now, I'd never heard that word before. No one at the office calls me a stinker pot, so I have no context for this word. I just know stinker pot doesn't sound really good. It kind of sounds like an insult to me, so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what is going on here? Are my kids trying to insult me? Is this about to be a discipline moment for us? But right as I'm thinking that, Julie comes around the corner and says, it's okay, Daddy. By stinker pot, they mean you're funny. I'm like, okay, I'll be a stinker pot then. That's great. And that's, that's what's going on when we're called slaves. Slave is not a derogatory term in the Bible. It's a good thing. You are a slave of Jesus, and that's the greatest thing of all. You have the best master possible. So slaves of Jesus, that's us, believers. And notice the penalty when a slave of Jesus, a believer, is unfaithful. He does not invest the mina well. What happens to the unfaithful servant, the unfaithful slave? Well, he misses out on reward. The other two slaves, they are given authority over all these cities. That's pretty awesome. We'll talk more about that later. The unfaithful slave loses that. He doesn't get to rule over any cities, but he's still a slave. He's still in the master's household. He still has a relationship with the master. He never loses that. Okay, so the first group, slaves, this is us, believers. The second group, who are they? The citizens of his country. These are people who are outside the household. They don't belong to the master yet. They don't serve the master yet. They have not received anything from the master yet. And, and notice these citizens, they have a very different response to the master than the slaves. The citizens reject the master. They, they reject him. They do not want him to be king. And so they, they actually, they are so forceful in their rejection that they send a delegation after him. Talks about that. What that's picturing is in the ancient world, when, when the nobleman would go away to the emperor to receive his kingdom, if you really hated the guy, what you would do is send a delegation, not to talk to him, but to talk to the emperor and badmouth him. Speak badly of him so the emperor wouldn't give him authority. So that's what these citizens do. They send a, a delegation to badmouth him because they've complete re, completely rejected him. Now, in the parable, these citizens who reject the master, these are unbelievers. They have heard about the master and they say no. So unbelievers, they've heard about Jesus and they say, no, I don't believe that he is who he said he was. We do not want anything to do with Jesus. Now, in the context of Luke, it's not just any unbelievers. It's particularly the leaders of the nation of Israel who literally rejected Jesus. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate at his trial, th these Jews actually said, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, we're not willing to have this guy as our king. They, they rejected him. So the citizens are unbelievers. They reject Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And what is the penalty that they receive? Right there at the end, they're executed. Way worse than what the slave gets. He just loses reward. They lose their lives. They are slayed in front of him. Now that actually happened. 
Those Jews who rejected Jesus, 40 years after Jesus was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, the Romans came to town. They came to Jerusalem and they leveled it and they executed any of the Jews who were still there. Massive execution. So they they literally died. That was their penalty in this life. And then in the next life, if they persisted throughout life in rejection of Jesus, then they were eternally separated from God. In this life, they said, we want nothing to do with Jesus. And so God says in the next life, okay, you get your wish. You have nothing to do with Jesus. You will not be with Jesus. And the only place that is not with Jesus is a place I call hell. So that's where you go. These are unbelievers. For their unfaithfulness, they receive eternal separation from God. That's what comes to anyone who rejects Jesus. Here's about Jesus and says, I don't want that. John 3, 18, he who believes in him, that is Jesus, is not judged. That's us who are believers. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now the good news is you can make sure that you're not part of the second group. You don't want to be part of the second group. You don't want wrath and judgment and punishment for all time. You can very easily become part of the first group through faith. All you have to do is simply believe that Jesus really is who he said he was. That Jesus is the son of God who came to earth so that he could die for your sins. He could take your sins upon his own body and die in your place. Take the punishment from God that you deserved. He took it on himself and then he rose from the dead conquering sin and death on your behalf so that you could have eternal life. The moment that you believe that Jesus, the son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead, you receive eternal life, you come into the household of God, you are forever a slave of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and and you haven't believed that good news, there's something keeping you back from believing that Jesus is the son of God who died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life, please come talk to me later or someone else here. None of the rest of this message applies to you. You got to get that right first. You got to enter the household of God through faith in the gospel. Now for us who have entered the household of God, we're the slaves. So let's keep going. What other principles does Jesus lay out for us? What else does he teach us about investing in this parable? Well, second, Jesus teaches us that as his slaves, when we invest, we invest as stewards, not owners. When you invest your time, your talents, your money, your wealth in this life, you invest as a steward, not an owner. Uh, A number of years ago, about five years ago, um, I have a friend who drives a pretty fast car. It's a Civic Si. It's a very fast version of an otherwise really boring car. He went out of the country for like two or three months, and he didn't want that car to just sit in his garage, so he loaned it to me. Say, Blake, drive this. I I need it to be driven around. And um, I'm kind of a car guy. That car has everything that I look for in a car. It is fast, has a stick shift. It's fun. Um, And so I got to be honest, I was really tempted to to race his car. I was really tempted to drive his car very hard and fast because it's very fun. But I never did. I pampered that car. I treated that car better than my own. Why? Because it wasn't mine. It was a gracious gift on loan to me. What Jesus wants us to understand in this parable is everything in your life, your time, your talents, your wealth, your body, everything in your life is like that car. It's not yours. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. My life, my time, my intellect, my talents, my money, my possessions, none of them are mine. All of them belong to God. Bible's unapologetic about that. 
So many verses about that. Here are a few. Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Everything on this planet belongs to God. Job 41, 11. Who has given to me, says God, that I should repay him, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The entire universe belongs to God. Everything is his. Your time, your talents, your intellect, your money, your possessions, your career, your job, your relationships, your kids, your spouse, your house, your car, all of it is his. None of it is yours. None of it belongs to you. I don't know if you realize this, not even your body belongs to you. You don't even belong to you. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. My body isn't even mine. None of it is mine. Nothing I have is mine. All of it is a gracious gift on loan to me for a very short time. That reality that nothing belongs to me, that it all belongs to God, will totally reshape how you approach life. When you recognize that nothing is yours, it's all his. To to convey that idea, the Bible uses this word stewards. According to scripture, we are stewards of our stuff. We are not owners. A steward, the word in in ancient Greek, the idea was a, a person who manages something on behalf of the owner. So a steward was someone who maybe managed a house or a business or some possession or some investment on behalf of the owner. The steward doesn't own the stuff. It's not his stuff. He manages it for the good of the owner. You're a steward. There's nothing in this world that belongs to you. All of it belongs to God. It's just on loan to us. So we invest as stewards, not owners. And that leads us to the third and final principle on investing that Jesus teaches us in this passage. We will be held responsible by him for how we invest. We'll be held responsible by him for how we invest. Look again at verse 13. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Do business with, literally in Greek, the idea is go make a profit for me with this. This is my money, but I'm going to entrust it to you so you can go do business with it to make me a profit. So that's what the master does. He, he gives this, this stewardship to these slaves to make him a profit. He goes away for a while and then he comes back. And he evaluates them. How have they done with his business? Have they made him a prophet? What Jesus is teaching us is that every steward will be evaluated. There is a day in the future where every single one of us as stewards of Jesus Christ will stand before him and give an account. We will stand before him and we will give an account for how we used his stuff. Did we use it for his glory or for ourselves? All of us will give an account of that on some day in the future when we stand before Jesus. And and Paul puts it this way, on that day when Jesus evaluates our life, here's what he's looking for. This is how one should regard us, says Paul, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Right at the very, very end of that verse, that is the measure of your life. If you're a believer, you already have eternal life, then the the measure of your life, when you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ and he evaluates your life, what he is looking for is the word at the end of that passage, faithful. Have you been faithful as a steward? 
Have you been faithful to use God's gifts for God's glory? Very practically, what what Jesus is talking about here, what Paul is talking about here, each and every day we wake up and face a choice. You wake up and, and you face a choice. You actually face a choice throughout the day. All the things that you have, your body, your health, your time, your intellect, your gifts, your abilities, your money, your possessions, your relationships, your house, your car, all that, will you use all of those things for the glory of God to build his kingdom, to build his fame, to share his gospel, or will you use it to build your kingdom, to amass pleasure and comfort, success and fame for yourself? You face that choice every day, and what Jesus wants us to understand is there is a day coming when we will be held to account. Good stewards use God's gifts for God's glory. So a day is coming when we will be evaluated. We will be judged by Jesus. Each and every steward will stand before him and he will evaluate our lives. And if we are faithful, each steward who is faithful will receive rich reward. I don't know if you've ever bought stock or bought an investment, bought into a business, Um, but when you're looking for an investment, the key thing you're looking for is ROI, return on investment. If I put money into this thing, what return, what profit can I expect? So uh, let's, let's ask that about the kingdom of God. We're being told by Jesus to invest in his kingdom and in his church and his things. What will be the return of on our investment if we invest our time, our talents, our wealth, our possessions, our lives in building God's kingdom, his church? What will be the return? Well, let's look at the parable again. Let's look at this uh, faithful steward. The first one who used the master's gifts really well. Look with me starting in verse 16. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You were to be in authority over 10 cities. Um, let me unpack that for you. Mina was a coin. It was worth 100 days wages in the ancient world. So if you take the average American salary, 100 days worth of the average yearly American salary would be $12,000. That's about what this guy's getting. He's getting 12 grand from the master. And now he faces a choice. 12 grand. He can spend it on himself, use it for his own ends, or he can invest it for the master to, to earn profit for the master. He makes the right choice. He invests it for the master. And what does he get in return? Well, um, first of all, master shows up, and I don't know if you notice this, but he gets to keep the, the first mina. He gets to keep that 12 grand, so that's not bad. Um, then he gets to keep the profit he made. He made 10 minas, so you multiply that. That's another $120,000. So he gets to keep all of it. That's $132,000 that the master lets him keep. Um, that's a lot of money, but that's nothing compared to the next thing. 10 cities. Man, I have no idea how you add up the wealth, the value of 10 cities, but they're his. He gets to rule over 10 whole cities. That is astronomical return on investment. So he just, he he delays spending that $12,000 on himself. He sacrifices 12 grand, invests it for the master, and in return, he gets 10 cities. That's crazy. Millions, billions of dollars worth that he gets from the master. Incredible return on investment. And makes Apple stock in the late 90s look like Trump change compared to that. It's incredible what he gets. Now let's talk about ourselves. Um, What do we get, according to the Bible, if we invest our lives for the kingdom of God? If we live now for Jesus, what will be the reward? Well, the Bible actually describes, it details three rewards that Jesus will give to his stewards who are faithful. The first reward that Jesus will give is honor. You see that in this passage. What does the master say to the faithful steward? Well done. 
Well done, good slave. He says it in front of all the other slaves. One day you will stand before Jesus and if you have lived faithfully, if you have been a faithful steward investing God's gifts in your life for God's glory, then Jesus will say to you in in sight, in, in hearing of all of heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. There will be no sweeter thing ever said to you than those words from Jesus himself. Honor and authority for stewards who are faithful. That's the first reward. Second reward is authority in Jesus' coming kingdom. You see that in the parable. The, the good slaves, they earn authority over cities. Now, what does that authority look like? I don't know for sure, but the New Testament talks about it in a number of passages. For example, Revelation 2.26, he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Jesus is coming back, hopefully soon, and he is going to rule over the earth, and he wants some people to rule with him. If we're faithful in this life, if we're faithful to serve him well now, then he will entrust authority to us in the future to rule over portions of the earth, cities, nations. I don't know what it'll be. It'll be great, whatever it is. Second reward is authority in his coming kingdom. Third reward that Jesus has for us is greater capacity for worship. That's the idea behind um, those kind of odd sayings in the New Testament about us receiving crowns. I don't know if you've ever read those. What, what exactly is going on? And, and why do I want to wear some crown around for all eternity? Does it sound real comfortable on my head? Um, what is that about? Well, you get an idea when you, when you add the passages together and look at them. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So so everyone who has lived sacrificially in view of the return of Christ, all believers who are faithful stewards, will receive this this crown of righteousness on their heads. And and what will we do with that for all of eternity? Well, we're told in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. This idea of crowns is related to worship in heaven. For all of eternity, we are going to be joyously celebrating the unmatched glory of God. We're just going to be overwhelmed by how great God is. And in that moment of worship, if we're faithful now, we will have this precious thing on our heads to throw at his feet. That's the idea. If you're faithful now, you have more opportunity for worship in eternity. More opportunity to put something lovely at the feet of Jesus Christ. So if you're faithful now, you receive honor from Jesus, you receive authority in his coming kingdom, and you receive greater capacity for worship in heaven. Now, as I've taught this before, I've taught some of these things many times, and I always get the same kind of questions, two questions, two problems that people have with this teaching. The first problem is that some people object to this whole idea of rewards in heaven. It just feels mercenary to them. They ask, Blake, shouldn't we obey God simply out of love, simply out of gratitude for all that he has done? Isn't it wrong to be motivated by some kind of mercenary desire for reward? To that, I I respond, well, actually, God gives us many motivations in scripture for obedience. If, If you read the Bible, you'll see actually a ton of the Bible is about motivating you to obey. Ton of the Bible. Motivations that God gives you to obey. And all of those motivations are valid. And, and you've just mentioned two of them. One motivation is that God wants you to obey him out of love and gratitude for what he's done. He does. He really wants you to obey him out of love and gratitude. A second motivation is God wants you to obey him because he wants to give you that reward. 
Remember, that's what Jesus wants to do. When Jesus sees you face to face, what he desperately wants to do is put a crown on your head. He wants to praise you before all of heaven. Jesus wants to reward you. So what that's telling us is that God doesn't want you to pick between those two motivations. He wants you to have both. Both are valid. You should obey God out of love and gratitude and you should obey God out of a desire for reward because God wants to give you that reward. There's nothing mercenary about it. That's what God wants to give you for all eternity. So this is not a mercenary motivation. It's one of many motivations the Bible gives us for being good stewards. That's the first objection I hear from people. The second question or objection is people come and say, what exactly is going on here? What what does this look like? Where will we rule? Um, What will that be? What will it be like to be honored by Jesus? To which I say, man, I don't have a clue. I really don't know. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details about this. If Jesus would have said, well, if you invest in my kingdom, I will give you $5,000 in the future. That I could wrap my head around. I know what $5,000 is. I know what you could do with that. But this stuff is hard to conceptualize. I don't know what exactly it'll look like. What I do know is this, a verse worth memorizing. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What Paul is saying is, whatever this reward looks like in the future, whatever it is, it is so glorious and so wonderful and so incredible that all of the pain and suffering of this life pales in comparison. It's not even worth being compared to it. The reward you will experience in heaven infinitely excels all of this world combined. Anything this earth could offer you is nothing. It is trivial compared to what Jesus himself will give you on that day if you have been faithful. These rewards in heaven are better in magnitude than any investment on earth. They're also better in duration. Notice eternal weight of glory. The best part about these rewards is you will enjoy them for eternity, forever. That's why this investment is so good. Invest in the kingdom of Jesus for a little while, maybe 70 or 80 years that you're on this planet, and you will enjoy the reward, the profit, forever. That's so much better than anything we could enjoy on earth. I was reminded of that this morning um, in a very painful way. Uh, This weekend was a fun weekend for Julie and I. After a lot of saving for a long, long time, we bought a new car this weekend. It's actually the first new car for me ever. Um, So I was really excited about that. Went and bought the new car. Um, I can't fit the new car in the garage because my kids have a lot of junk and it clutters up my garage. So I had it parked outside last night, um, which is why at 6.15 a.m. this morning, I was in a panic because I woke up to the sound of hail coming down on my roof. It hailed where we live. And so um, I, in my PJs, jumped up and ran to the utility room, grabbed an old comforter, ran outside in the pouring hail and rain and tried to cover up the new car to no avail because the wind is blowing the comforter off the car. Um, This morning I come out and, and fortunately found the hail was really small, didn't do any damage to the new car, but I was reminded of the futility of investing in the things of this world because they don't last. I don't even have license plates on that car and it could have been totaled (laughs) in two days. The things of this world don't last at all. That's why investing in the kingdom of God is so much better. It will last forever. Your reward will be yours for all of time and no one can take it away from you. I like how Randy Alcorn puts this in his excellent little tiny book called The Treasure Principle. Really tiny book. It'll take you like 10 minutes to read it. Great book. He says, this life is like a dot. This whole life, all your 70, 80, 90 years here is like a dot. The next life is like a line that goes off the page 
for, for an eternal distance, um, and, and you have a choice. Where would you like to have your reward? Do you want to have your reward in this life, or do you want to have your reward in the next life? Where do you want to enjoy your reward? Well, what's the wise choice? The line. I want to invest in the line. I want to have my reward in the line because then it's mine forever. Only the fool would want his reward in the dot. It's over in an instant. That's why investing in the kingdom of God is so much better than investing in the things of this world because you will enjoy it forever. That's what motivated Jim Elliott, famous quote, to say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Give up the things in this world so that you can invest in the kingdom of God and you will receive a reward that is yours forever. Honor, authority, and capacity to worship from Jesus himself, yours forever, if you are faithful. If not, you will experience loss. And that's the third guy in our parable. The unfaithful steward suffers loss. He misses out on the reward that could have been his. Let's talk about him for just a moment. Verse 20, another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Now, remember the third slave, this unfaithful slave, he is a believer, So he's saved, he has eternal life, he's in the household of the master, but this believer, this slave is having a difficult time trusting in the master's goodness. He's having a a difficult time trusting that his master's gonna take care of him and provide for him. He sees his master as as a pretty harsh guy guy who's not really interested in his good. He's only interested in his profit. And so uh, the slave thinks to himself, well, if the master's not going to take care of me, I need to take care of me. So he shirks his responsibility, buries the mina, and lives life for himself because he doesn't trust the master. Now, before we judge this guy too harshly, let's recognize this is many of us, myself included on many days of my life. Even though I'm a believer, I have a hard time trusting in the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's why um, people often have a hard time, believers often have a a difficult time um, giving money to the church, to missions. Um, They give a little, maybe none at all. Why? Well, because I I need to hold on to that money. That money is how I provide for me and my family in the future. Well, what you're really saying when you say that is, is that you don't trust Jesus to provide for you and your family in the future. You have to do it, and so you're gonna hoard your money to protect yourself, to provide for yourself because you don't trust the master's goodness. We're just like that third slave so often. So he, he talks about the master as this harsh man. Now let's talk for a moment. Is, is the third slave, is he accurate in his assessment of the master? Absolutely not. What had the master just done? One verse before. He had just graciously rewarded these two faithful stewards. And remember, uh, the two faithful slaves, uh, they were not investing their money. They were investing his money. He gave them the money in the first place. They invest it, and then they get to keep the money. They get to keep the profit, and now they get whole cities to enjoy. The master is the gracious giver. He's the greatest giver of them all. That's Jesus. Jesus is incredibly gracious. The third slave is wrong, but the master says, okay, Well, slave, I will judge you based on your own erroneous understanding of who I am. You think I'm harsh. So if I really was harsh, then wouldn't it have made sense to go put my money in the bank so at least I'd have a little interest on my return? You have been a fool. You have lived a worthless life. And the steward loses out. And that's what will happen to to any of us who don't invest God's gifts for God's glory. We will suffer loss. The New Testament puts it this way. 
two passages. First is 1 John 2.28. Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In shame at his coming. Jesus is coming and one day you'll stand before him. Judgment seat of Christ. You'll stand before him and give an account of your life. And if you have been unfaithful, if you have not lived for him and invested for his glory, then in that moment when you first see Jesus face to face, you will feel shame. You'll feel embarrassed. Here is the Savior, the sovereign creator who died for me, who is glorious and resplendent. And I was unfaithful to him. You'll feel shame. Now, just to clarify, that shame won't last for eternity. The book of Revelation tells us that after that feeling of shame, God himself will comfort us, wipe away every tear. But for that excruciating moment, when we first stand before Jesus, if we've been unfaithful in this life, then rather than feel joy to see him, we'll feel ashamed of ourselves because we've lived poorly. So if we're unfaithful stewards, the first thing we lose out on is honor. Instead, we suffer shame. Second thing is we lose out on reward. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation of the church with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day when we stand before Jesus will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, then he will receive a reward. That's the faithful steward. He receives his reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Notice Paul's very clear. If we are unfaithful as believers, as stewards, we're still saved. You don't lose eternal life. You never earned it. It's not yours to forfeit. It's a gift that is yours forever. You're still saved, yet you're saved as through fire. You take nothing with you. You don't even have the clothes on your back. They're singed. You have no reward. You have no honor. You lose. You miss out on all that Jesus wants to give you when you stand before him for evaluation. So if we are faithful in this life, if we live lives that are invested for Jesus, investing his gifts for his glory, then when he returns, he will give us honor, he will give us authority in his coming kingdom, and he will give us capacity to worship him for all of eternity. All of those are ours forever if we are faithful to invest our time, our talents, our abilities, our money, our wealth, our possessions for his glory and kingdom. Now, I want to end this morning by getting practical. How exactly do we invest our lives in God's kingdom and in the growth of God's church? Well, we're going to be talking about that for the next three weeks. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three particular resources that Jesus has given us. And we're going to talk about how we invest each of these things in the growth of God's kingdom and the advancement of Jesus's church. So very practical messages the next three weeks as we look at at these three stewardships in our lives, our stewardship of our talents, our, our abilities and skills, our wealth, our money and possessions, and our time. This morning, I want to step back and look at the bigger picture. How do I invest my whole life, all of me, in the kingdom of God? How do I become a a good steward who faithfully lives for the master, who invests his gifts for his glory? How do I grow up 
as a good steward? How do I develop as a good steward of Jesus? Um, we've actually, here on staff, been trying to answer that question for, for a number of years. We've been working on this for a while. It's actually part of a, of a bigger question. How do we help one another grow up in Jesus? How do we help one another grow as disciples of Jesus? How do we help each other become complete in Jesus Christ so that we can be good stewards, so that we can invest every part of our lives in the growth of his kingdom? We've been wrestling with that, and what we have developed um, over a number of months is something that we're rolling out today. You will see this often over the next few years in one form or fashion. You were given it when you came in this morning. What we've developed is a tool. It is called Guide to Growing in Grace. It's on one side of the handout they gave you when you walked in. If you didn't get it, it's in the foyer. It is also online. There's a little website on the bottom, grace-bible.org backslash guide. Now, the nice thing is the one online, it's like this, but everything here is a hyperlink that takes you to all of these things. So anyways, our guide to growing in grace. This is, um, this is not a formula for how you become complete in Christ. It's more a picture. This is a picture of what a faithful follower of Jesus Christ should look like, what a mature disciple of Jesus, a a faithful steward will look like. A faithful steward of Jesus will have vision, just like Jesus did, for life's purpose and direction. You'll have knowledge, just like Jesus did, of God through his word. You will have character that reflects Jesus, character that is like Christ. You will have skills to live and minister wisely, just as Jesus did. And you will have relationships of love with God and others, both believers and unbelievers. You'll love well, just like Jesus did. Now, this guide is designed to remind us that discipleship, spiritual maturity, is holistic, we got to grow in all five of these areas. It's not enough if you are just knowledgeable about the Bible. If you have a whole lot of theology but not Christ-like character, you are immature. Your theology is worthless to you. You have to grow in all five areas. And so what we've done is compile some resources under each of these five areas that will help you to grow. Again, the list online, they're all hyperlinks. So if you click on a small group, it'll take you to the sign-up page. It'll take you to the ministry page for the books. It'll take you to a, an online page where you can buy the books. Um, we'd love for you to go uh, check out these resources. And this year, what we want you to do this semester is choose a couple of things on this guide to growing in grace to put into effect put into practice this spring. Okay, so look over that list, look over those five categories, and just honestly, prayerfully ask yourself, in what area am I weakest? Where am I struggling? Is it vision? Do I really have no clue what God's direction is for my life? Is it character? Do I have some hole in my character where I'm not living like Jesus? Whatever it is, choose one of those resources to begin to put into practice, whether a small group to join, a a ministry to experience, a book to read, some resource to take advantage of. And two in particular that I want to point your attention to, they're both at the top of the page. I would encourage you to join a small group. It doesn't have to be with us here at Grace. It can be any small group in town that is studying the Bible and providing accountability. Join a small group. The small group touches all five of those areas. So it's the single best step that you can take. If you want to grow up to be like Jesus, join a small group because that's where spiritual maturity happens. So join a small group. You can do that on our website if you'd like. Just click connect on the homepage. Second, actually the back of this little handout we gave you. Next Saturday, we have our Grace 360 conference. Really excited about this. Next Saturday morning over at the Anderson campus, I and some of the other pastors are going to host a conference. We're going to have a number of workshops that are designed to teach 
teach you and equip you in each of these five areas. So you come and you get to pick whichever workshop you'd like to go on based on um, where you need to be working and growing. We'd love to have you join us for that conference um, as we grow. The idea there, Grace 360, we want every facet of our lives informed by grace, the grace of God. And so come join us next Saturday morning for Grace 360. Now, to to leave you guys, what I want to leave you with is um, not a long list of events, but a verse, one verse, one more parable on investing from Jesus. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Short little story about investing. Think about what's happening here. Picture it in your mind. Guy is traveling along the road, maybe he has a walking stick. He's traveling along a path, and, and for some reason he, he gets off the path. Maybe he sees something over there, he's going to go have lunch, and he sits down over here. And he's walking off the path, and, and maybe his staff strikes something hard in the ground. It sounds hollow, it sounds odd. And so he, he begins to, to root around in the grass, and he starts to dig down to see what's there. And he finds a box buried in this field, and he opens it up, and there's some crazy treasure in there. Like lots and lots of minas in this box. He's just blown away. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe all the treasure in this box, but he can't just take it. The field doesn't belong to him, so neither does the treasure. So what does he do? He buries it, he puts it under the ground, and in joy, he runs back to town as fast as he can, and he sells everything he has to be able to buy that field so that he can enjoy and claim that treasure. What Jesus wants us to understand, when you give up something in this life for Jesus... When you give money to to Jesus, to his church, to his mission, when you give time to building God's church, to sharing the gospel, to discipling people, when you use your abilities, your talents uh, to serve Jesus, when you give to the kingdom of God, you gotta understand, you are not making a sacrifice, right? You're not making a sacrifice. What are you making? An investment. God will be no man's debtor. God will return to you tenfold everything you give to him. Not in this life. That's where so many churches and so many preachers go wrong. God's not giving you profit in this life. It's in the next life. For all of eternity, honor, authority, and capacity to worship from Jesus himself that you will enjoy forever if you will simply serve him in this short little life that we have. If you're faithful with the little that God has given you now, you will be entrusted with much when you see him. Let's pray for his help to be faithful stewards. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we thank you that you are God, that you own all things. Lord, when we give to you our time, our bodies, our abilities, our money, we're not giving to you something you need. You don't need anything from us. Lord, we're simply making an investment, an investment that that will pay dividends for all of eternity. And we thank you, Lord, that you would want to reward us. It's, It's more than enough just that you would want to save us, but that you would actually go beyond salvation and want to reward us with honor and authority and and crowns in heaven. We just thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious. We thank you that Jesus longs to reward us when we stand before him. But Father, we need your help. We need your spirit to convict us. We need your spirit to to rebuke us of the places where we are living for ourselves, where we're living selfish lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are dedicated to the growth of your kingdom and not to the growth of our kingdoms. I pray, Father, that we would live lives that are sold out for you. 
that we would give you all of our time, all of our money, our wealth, our possessions, our talents, our relationships, everything that we have, not because you need them, but because we want to invest in what truly matters, in the growth of your kingdom to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grow us up, Lord, to be like Jesus, to be good stewards who faithfully invest all that you've given us for your glory. We pray this for the glory and fame of your son, Jesus Christ, in his name. Amen. See you next week.